You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Before today's episode begins, an apology for the strangely raspy quality of the vocals. I'm still trying to determine what's causing it. There's a special title reserved for those not of the Jewish faith who selflessly helped to save the lives of Jews during the Holocaust of World War II. They are called Righteous Among the Nations. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The layout of today's show is going to be a little bit different from normal. Usually I do a bit of subject matter, and then a bit of something else like a review or Patreon plug, but I'm going to put all of that at the beginning today because it seems wrong to put silly segues in such a serious topic. Speaking of segues, though... They were mentioned in a recent Apple Podcast review from Robo19, who said, Moxie delivers snack-sized original topics and amazing facts. Your brain on facts is for anyone who enjoys an intelligent, humorous, and well-produced podcast. Also, Moxie is the master of the not-always-subtle segue. Do yourself a big favor, subscribe to your brain on facts, and if you're able, donate on Patreon so Moxie can produce new podcasts every day. I swear I'm not related to this person. Thank you, Robo19, for those fabulous words and calls to action. And of course, check out patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts for the exciting tiers available to our members. Everyone donating $5 or more a month just got a bonus mini-episode refuting the claim that no one has ever died in a Disney park. I'd also like to extend another welcome and thank you to our amazing new listeners over on Pandora. Not only have we gotten a bunch of new listeners, but so many of them have reached out. Such as Ray, who sent us a message through the Facebook page, facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts. I've just started listening to your podcast a month ago, and I'm in love. I've always been a weirdo for unusual facts. My wife can agree to that. Thank you for keeping my brain filled with amazing knowledge. If you want to get even more knowledge, more than I put on the podcast and on the social media feeds, go to facebook.com slash groups, plural, slash Brainiac Breakroom for even more bonus facts. And if you'd like to hear your name in comments read on the air, you can leave a review through your favorite podcast listening app, or contact us through social media, or the contact form at the bottom of yourbrainonfacts.com. Chiune Sugihara was born in 1900 to a middle-class family in Jifu Prefecture on Japan's main island of Honshu. Sugihara wanted to travel to see and experience everything the world had to offer. He was interested in foreign ideas, religion, philosophy, and language, an area of study in which he excelled. Sugihara was a humble man with no temper, self-sacrificing, and fond of self-effacing humor. His second wife, Yukiko, who he married in 1935, said he found it difficult to discipline the children when they misbehaved. Samurai ethics were still firmly in effect during Sugihara's upbringing, with the virtues of love of family, care for children, duty and responsibility, controlling one's emotions, resourcefulness, and not bringing shame on one's family. It took enormous courage for Sugihara to defy his father's expectations that he become a doctor, instead leaving Japan to study overseas. 
His life took another modern turn when he married a Caucasian woman and converted to Christianity while working for the government in Manchuria. He would quit that post in protest of the government's mistreatment of the Chinese and openly opposed the Japanese military policies of expansion in the 1930s. Being fluent in Russian helped Sugihara become vice-consul of the Japanese consulate in the temporary Lithuanian capital of Kovno in November 1939. The location between Germany and the Soviet Union was strategically significant, and Sugihara was under orders to gather intelligence on Soviet and German troop movements in the Baltic region. After Hitler's invasion of Poland in September 1, 1939, Britain and France declared war on Germany. Sugihara had barely settled into his post when the first wave of Jewish refugees arrived in Lithuania, with chilling tales of German atrocities against the Jewish population. They had escaped Poland without possessions or money. The local Jewish community did their utmost to help the refugees. Lithuania had been an enclave of peace and prosperity for the approximately 120,000 Jews who lived there, but it was hard for people to believe the level of brutality that was being reported. Sugihara realized that, with Western Europe engulfed in war, the most likely escape route from Lithuania would be an eastern route through the Soviet Union. That changed in June 1940 when the Soviets invaded Lithuania. It was now too late for the Lithuanian Jews to leave through the east. Most of Western Europe had been conquered by the Nazis, with Britain standing alone. The rest of the free world, with very few exceptions, barred the immigration of Jewish refugees from Nazi-occupied Europe. And in case you were wondering, yes, that includes the U.S. Strangely specifically, though, the Soviets would allow Polish Jews to continue to travel from Lithuania through the Soviet Union if they could attain specific travel documents. In July of 1940, Soviet authorities instructed all foreign embassies to leave Convo. Most made tracks immediately, except for the acting Dutch consul, Jan Svartsendijk, and Sugihara, who requested to stay for 20 more days. Some of the Polish refugees came up with a plan. They discovered that two Dutch colonial islands in the Caribbean, Caruso and Dutch Guiana, now called Suriname, didn't require formal entrance visas. Svartsendijk got permission from his government to stamp their passports with entrance permits. There was still one major obstacle, though. To get to these islands, the refugees needed to pass through the Soviet Union and Japan. The Soviet consul agreed to let them pass on one condition. In addition to the Dutch entrance permit, they would also need to obtain a transit visa from Japan. On a summer morning in late July 1940, Sugihara and his family awoke to a crowd of desperate Polish Jewish refugees gathered outside the consulate. Sugihara was moved by their plight, but he didn't have the authority to independently issue hundreds of visas without permission from the foreign ministry in Tokyo. Sugihara wired his government three times for permission to issue the visas. Three times he was refused. The Japanese consul in Tokyo sent a telegram. Concerning transit visas requested previously, stop. Advise absolutely not to be issued any traveler not holding firm end visa with guaranteed departure from Japan. 
Stop. No exceptions. Stop. No further inquiries expected. Stop. Kei Tanaka, Foreign Ministry, Tokyo. Sugihara had a difficult decision to make. On the one side, he was bound by the traditional obedience he had been taught all of his life. On the other, he couldn't just ignore those in need. If he defied his superiors, he'd be fired, blacklisted, and disgraced, leaving his family in extreme financial hardship. He took the decision to his family. His wife Yukiko feared for their lives and the lives of their children, but they could only follow their consciences. The visas would be signed. Sugihara also spoke to Soviet officials who agreed to let Jews travel through the country on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, though it would be at five times the standard ticket price. For 29 days, from July 31st to August 28, 1940, Mr. and Mrs. Sugihara spent countless hours writing and signing visas by hand. They wrote over 300 visas, a month's worth of work, every day. Yukiko would also help him register the visas and massaged her husband's cramping hands. She had to make sure he was eating because he didn't want to stop for even a minute. People were standing in line in front of the consul day and night. When some people began to try to climb the compound walls, Sugihara went out to calm them and assure them that he would do his best to help them all. He had the refugees call him Senpo, the Sino-Japanese reading of the characters of his given name, as it would be easier for non-Japanese people to pronounce. Many of the 10-day travel visas went to heads of household, who would automatically be allowed to take their families with them. Hundreds of applicants became thousands, as Sugihara worked to process as many visas as possible before he'd be forced to close the consulate and leave Lithuania on September 4th. Sugihara continued handing out visas from the window of his train until the moment it pulled out of Kovno headed for Berlin. In final desperation, blank sheets of paper with only the consulate's seal and his signature were thrown from the train. As he prepared to depart, he said, Please forgive me. I cannot write any more. I wish you the best. Sugihara worried that there would be an official reaction to the massive number of visas he had issued, that someone might call them into question and refuse to honor them. But many years later, he recalled, No one ever said anything about it. I remember thinking they probably didn't realize how many I actually issued. While it's hard to know how many visas Juni Sugihara issued, as many as 6,000 refugees made their way to Japan, China, and other countries in the following months and escaped the Holocaust in Europe. Despite his disobedience, the Japanese government found Sugihara's skills useful for the remainder of the war. But in 1945, the government unceremoniously dismissed him from diplomatic service, and he effectively had to start his life over again, only able to find part-time work as an interpreter. For the last two decades of his life, he worked as a manager of an export company with a business in Moscow. Sugihara's fateful decision to risk his career and even the lives of his family may have been influenced by a simple act of kindness from an 11-year-old boy the previous year. Sally Gaynor was the son of refugees from the Russian Revolution in the early 1920s. His family prospered in Lithuania in the years before World War II. Sali became concerned about the Polish Jews he was seeing and gave his allowance and savings to charity to help them. Having given away all of his money, 
he went to his aunt's shop to ask her for a lit, a Lithuanian dollar, to see the latest Laurel and Hardy picture. Sugihara was there and overheard the conversation, and gave Solly two lit to have a good time at the movies. Full of gratitude, Solly invited Sugihara to celebrate the first night of Hanukkah with his family. Sugihara was delighted to accept, and he and Yukiko attended their first Jewish holiday. The closeness of Sali's family reminded Sugihara of his own family, and the bounty of desserts didn't hurt either. Sadly, Sali's family would not be able to benefit from the visas Sugihara would issue the next year, as they were still Soviet citizens. Sali and his father spent over two years in the Konos ghetto before being deported to the outer camps of Dachau in 1944. Sali was actually rescued by Japanese-American soldiers of the 522nd Field Artillery Battalion, though their story will have to wait for another day. After the war, Sugihara never spoke of his extraordinary deeds. His story was largely unknown, until 1969 when he was tracked down by one of the men he had saved. Soon, hundreds of others came forward and testified to the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial Society in Israel about his life-saving acts of courage. After gathering testimonials from all over the world, Yad Vashem realized the enormity of Sugihara's act of kindness and bravery. Today, two generations later, 40,000 people are alive who wouldn't have been if not for him. In 1985, he received Israel's highest honor, being recognized as righteous among the nations by the Yad Vashem Martyrs Remembrance Authority in Jerusalem. Sugihara was too old to travel to Israel, so his wife and son accepted on his behalf. A tree was planted in his name at Yad Vashem, and a park in Jerusalem named in his honor. When asked why he signed the visas, Sugihara's reason was simple. They were human beings, and they needed help. I'm glad I found the strength to make the decision to give it to them. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Mere days after the German occupation of Poland's western territory triggered World War II in September 1939, Soviet forces invaded from the east. This was not an improvement over the encroaching Nazis. The Soviet atrocities in eastern Poland included mass arrests and massacres, seizure of lands and businesses, and the displacement or enslavement of civilian population. Writes historian Norman Davies in Heart of Europe, The Past in Poland's Present, of the estimated 2 million Polish civilians deported to Arctic Russia, Siberia, and Kazakhstan in the terrible railway convoys of 1939 and 40, 
at least one-half were dead within a year. When the Soviets joined the Allied powers in 1941, many of the deportees were released, but because of the war, there was no homeland for them to return to. Many of the men joined the Polish army, while the women and children were evacuated to Iran and eventually given asylum in countries as far away as Kenya, New Zealand, Mexico, and India. As the horrors of the Holocaust unfolded in Europe, General Władysław Sikorski, the first prime minister of the Polish government in exile and commander-in-chief of the Polish armed forces, wrote to British Prime Minister Winston Churchill to plead for the safety and protection of their starving children, the treasure of Poland. Though the British colony of India was facing problems of their own, like their struggle for independence and a famine that was being exacerbated by Churchill, see episode 31, Mixed Bags of History, when the British government decided to accept Polish refugees into India in 1942, the Maharaja of the princely state of Narwangar offered to host them. Maharaja Digvijay Singhji Rajit Singhji Jadeja, also known as Jam Sahib, a nickname that means sort of head boss, ordered a settlement built for the refugee children at Balachadi on the western coast of India at the site of his summer palace. A group of around a thousand Polish children and a number of women departed Siberia for India, where, lost and orphaned by the war, they had been sent by the Soviets. The ships were denied entry when they called on ports while sailing through Iran to Bombay, modern-day Mumbai. When their ship docked in Mumbai, the British governor refused them entry as well. Jam Sahib heard of this and pressed the government to let the refugees disembark. Frustrated by the lack of empathy and the unwillingness of the government to act, the Maharaja ordered the ship to dock at Rossi Port in his province. Thus began the story of Little Poland in India. The Maharaja already had an abiding interest in Poland, an outgrowth of his father's friendship with a Polish pianist that Jem Sahib remembered meeting as a child. In an interview, he explained, I am trying to do whatever I can to save the children as they must regain their health and strength after these dreadful trials, so that in the future they will be able to cope with the tasks that await them in a liberated Poland. It is estimated that nearly 5,000 Polish refugees from Soviet camps lived in India between 1942 and 48. Multiple transit camps were set up in different locations in India for refugees crossing over from Iran to other places. Many of the children were orphans. Some parents were missing, others had joined the Polish army, which was being assembled in the Soviet Union. Please tell the children, said Jem Sahib, they are no longer orphans, because I am their father. A brief aside, I am in premature menopause right now, and getting through this story about frightened orphan children without getting verklempt, it took a few takes. <laughs> Far from the ravages of the war, life in Palachadi was warm and cheerful. Every effort was made to create a home away from home. A school and a hospital were built. The children were free to enjoy Jem Sahib's garden, squash courts, and pool. Concerned that the children were not eating enough, Jem Sahib brought professional chefs in to cook for them. Preserving Polish culture and tradition were a priority, and a Polish flag was raised at the site. Scouts and church, institutions that were integral to Polish life, 
were also built in Little Poland. What the Maharaja did was an example of the ancient Sanskrit philosophy of Vasudheva Kutumbakam, the world is one family. Decades later, Jem Sahib is considered a Polish hero. He was posthumously awarded the Commander's Cross of the Order of Merit, one of the country's highest honors. In the heart of Warsaw lies the Square of the Good Maharaja. Not far from that, one of Warsaw's foremost private schools, the Maharaja Jem Sahib Digvijay Sinji High School. In 1999, ten years after the end of communist rule, the high school chose the Maharaja to be its patron. It was the fulfillment of a promise made long ago. Vladislav Sikorski, the prime minister of the Polish government in exile, had asked the Maharaja, How can we thank you for your generosity? The Maharaja replied, You can name a school after me when Poland becomes a free country again. The Maharaja set an extraordinary example of generosity and acceptance. This story is our inspiration, says the vice principal of the high school. The school emulates the Maharaja's examples by accepting children of political refugees and migrants in difficult economic or social situations. Each year, more and more people learn about the attitude shown by our patron Jem Sahib, which is specifically significant while Europe struggles with the issue of massive migration. If you pop into the show notes for this episode on your podcast app or go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash righteous, you'll find a link to a documentary on YouTube about the Maharaja called A Little Poland in India. Here's looking at you, kid, and the misquoted Play It Again, Sam are all that a lot of people know about the movie Casablanca, released 77 years ago which immortalized quiet acts of resistance against fascism in wartime Morocco. The legendary scene at Rick's Café, where refugees drown out Nazi officers by singing La Marseille, became an instant inspiration to moviegoers as World War II was raging. The setting of the film was no coincidence. Casablanca was a haven for those fleeing for their lives, and the city saw a real-life act of heroism, the protection of the Jews of Morocco, by the young Sultan Mohammed V, at a time when both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia were on the rise globally. Mohammed V was the third-born nephew of the sitting Sultan. A series of international disputes between France and Germany led to the Treaty of Fez in 1912 and French control of Morocco. The Sultan at the time abdicated because of the treaty, and Mohammed's father took the throne. After his father's death, 16-year-old Mohammed V was named Sultan, largely because the French thought he would be more docile than his older brothers. This was, to put it lightly, a misjudgment. When Paris fell to the Germans in July of 1940, the Sultan, then 30, found his nation under the rule of the French Vichy government, which cooperated fully with the Nazis and sought to enforce anti-Semitic laws in Morocco. Jews had lived there since the Roman Empire was battling Carthage, and over a quarter million Jews called Morocco home as of 1940. Jewish men had served the Sultanate as ministers, diplomats, and advisors. One aspect of being Sultan was to act as the commander of the faithful, which Muhammad V took very seriously. He viewed all people of the book, meaning anyone belonging to the big three Abrahamic religions, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, as being under his protection. He publicly refused 
to assist in the persecution of his own citizens. There are no Jews in Morocco, he declared. There are only Moroccan subjects. Vichy authorities forced Mohammed V to enact two laws restricting certain professions and schools from Jews and requiring them to live in ghettos. But the Sultan declined to enforce the laws. He was a direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam, and would not be intimidated. In 1941, Muhammad V made a point of inviting senior representatives of the Jewish community to the annual banquet celebrating the anniversary of his sultanate, and placed them in the best seats next to the French officials. I absolutely do not approve of the new anti-Semitic laws, and I refuse to associate myself with a measure I disagree with, he told the officials. I reiterate, as I did in the past, that the Jews are under my protection, and I reject any distinction that should be made amongst my people. Although there were limits to his power, Mohammed V ensured that the Jews in Morocco were never rounded up, and they always had a haven there as much as possible. During the two years of Vichy rule, no Moroccan Jews were deported or killed. No Jew in Morocco was forced to wear the Yellow Star. When Allied troops liberated North Africa in November of 1942, the Moroccan Jewish community was essentially intact. The Sultan was a distinct exception among leaders in the Middle East, who rallied to the side of the Axis powers in hopes of driving the Jews out of Palestine and the British from their remaining colonies. The Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, for example, spent the war years in Berlin, courting Adolf Hitler and Heinrich Himmler, plotting the extermination of the Jews and recruiting Eastern European Muslims to fight for the Nazis. Mohammed V, on the other hand, was a strong supporter of the Allies and welcomed President Roosevelt, Prime Minister Churchill, and French President Charles de Gaulle for four days in 1943 for the historic Casablanca Conference to plan the Allied European strategy for the next phase of World War II. Even after the war, he continued to protect his Jewish subjects. When the Arab world reacted violently to the declaration of the State of Israel in 1948, the Sultan reminded Moroccans that Jews had always been protected in their country and were not to be harmed. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Muhammad V died suddenly in 1961, just four years after Morocco became an independent monarchy and he gained the title of king. The outpouring of grief was immense. Some 75,000 Jews mourned publicly, the chief rabbi delivered a memorial address by radio, and Jews were prominent participants at the coronation of his son Hassan II and at the new king's first prayer service. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. This is Moxie Labouche reminding you, it's always okay to punch Nazis. Always. Always.